one of my uh, friends, he said, hey, Lewis, come check out this uh, code I wrote. And essentially, it was like 100 lines of TensorFlow 1 uh, doing this kind of um, algorithmic detection of signal versus background. And it had this peculiar property that it just crushed all the previous work of like physicists for like 20 years or so um, on various benchmarks uh, for classification. And for me, this was my first kind of direct encounter with uh, machine learning. And I thought, okay, this seems pretty powerful. Um, I should probably pay attention. How did the best machine learning practitioners get involved in the field? What challenges have they faced? What has helped them flourish? Let's ask them. Welcome to Learning from Machine Learning. I'm your host, Seth Levine. Hello and welcome to Learning from Machine Learning. On this episode, we have a very special guest, Louis Tunstall. He's currently a machine learning engineer at Hugging Face, uh, the co-author of the best-selling book, Natural Language Processing with Transformers, co-author on one of my favorite papers in NLP, Efficient Few-Shot Learning with Sentence Transformers, and the SetFit library. Um, his current work focuses on developing tools for the NLP community and teaching people to use them effectively. Uh, currently focusing on reinforcement learning with human feedback, and I'm looking forward to jumping into that. Lewis, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Seth. It's a pleasure to be here. It's great to have you. Um, why don't you give our listeners uh, a little bit of background and what initially attracted you to machine learning? Yeah, sure. So it's a, it's a bit of a long story. I'll try to keep it uh, short. But um, basically, I, uh, I used to be a physicist. Um, and in particular, I used to be a theoretical physicist. So I was working in a very nerdy domain called uh, quantum field theory, where you try to develop mathematical theories to describe subatomic interactions. And uh, at the time when I was uh, doing research in this, we had a big search for a particle called the Higgs boson at the Large Hadron Collider. And uh, the way you try to detect these particles in these experiments is you try to have a clever way of distinguishing signal from background. So you've got a huge amount of collisions happening and you're trying to work out how do I find the, the particular signature of, say, the Higgs boson. And the thing is that physicists are never really happy with the knowledge that we know. We're always trying to find new things. And so the hot topic at the time was to try and find some evidence of like physics beyond the standard model. And a couple of my colleagues had spent many years developing algorithms uh, to try and detect uh, you know, evidence of some new physics. And at the end of my postdoc, I was kind of deciding, you know, should I stay in academia or should I try and take a look at what's happening in industry? And one of my uh, friends, he said, hey, Lewis, come check out this uh, code I wrote. And essentially, it was like 100 lines of TensorFlow 1 uh, doing this kind of um, algorithmic detection of signal versus background. And it had this peculiar property that it just crushed all the previous work of like physicists for like 20 years or so. Um, on various benchmarks uh, for classification. And for me, this was my first kind of direct encounter with uh, machine learning. And I thought, okay, this seems pretty powerful. Um, I should probably pay attention. And <laughs> yeah. uh, more or less the next day, I, um, I, I started looking a bit at like Python. I'd never really programmed before. And oh, wow. so I took a look at uh, Python. I spun up the, the TensorFlow docs, uh, which in those days, were, it, was like, it was pretty hard to get started in deep learning. And, um, and then it kind of started from there. And the, the sort of first step I had into doing machine learning was uh, doing a Kaggle competition uh, with a couple of uh, physics friends. And this really got me hooked. Uh, I found it totally fascinating that you could you know, learn from data and 
you know, iterate with different types of algorithms. And this kind of made me uh, take a step into industry. <clears throat> and uh, yeah, I kind of never looked back after that. Um, but it was very much a chance encounter. I, I think if I had never seen this 100 lines of TensorFlow, I probably would have still be, uh, you know, doing physics. Yeah, still with the Hadron Collider. Um, that's amazing. What what a great story. I think it's fascinating that, um, you know, you can take machine learning, you can apply it to so many different fields, and you can see these sorts of breakthroughs, right? Um, you know, back in like 2012, there was the big AlexNet, where people were trying this problem for so long, trying to do it in a certain way, and then there was this thing that came along, and it just like halved error rates, right? Or there's like AlphaGo that came along, um, AlphaFold that came along and just did protein uh, prediction, you know, in a way that had never been done before. Um, so it's very cool to hear that it applied also to quantum physics and you were able to kind of get that that exposure um cool so yeah working with tensorflow and then getting working with python so you started with python um a little bit like a little bit later on in your in your career how, how did how did that go yeah yeah it was uh i think i'm a bit like a granddad in that sense like you know everyone at hugging face has started coding since they were like seven <laughs> and uh, i'm the guy who started when he was like 28 <laughs> so um so, so the reason for that is kind of funny. So in undergrad, I um, I did a course in computational physics, and it, the the language of choice was Fortran. Oh God! And this traumatized me so hard that I literally didn't pick up any code uh, again for like almost ten years after that. And I think I had a sort of uh, let's say uh, perception that coding was a little bit uh, too mundane, and that you know the only really interesting problems are the ones that you can solve with a pen and paper in your mind. Yeah. And uh, machine learning kind of changed that perception for me big time. And learning learning Python at the start, I think was kind of tough because in those days, this is like 2015 or so, 2016, um, there weren't a ton of like materials to like get started in ML. So you had Andrew NG's uh, yeah. amazing Coursera course. But that was written, I think, in, in MATLAB or something. Octave, Octave that's yeah, right. which is the same as MATLAB. Yeah, but I, I remember it. I remember it well. I'm a MATLAB fan. Just yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so I remember um, almost doing all the inefficient things. Like I was like, hey, I need to learn Python. And being a physicist, you try to do everything like from scratch. So you say, okay, before I do any ML, I need to learn Python. So I remember like looking at like the, the sort of docs of Python and trying to like learn Python from reading the docs. Right. And that's kind of an inefficient way of doing things, right? And um, what changed uh, for me quite, I would say big time in, in accelerating things was uh, stumbling into the fast AI course uh, by Jeremy Howard. Oh, wow, yeah. And he's amazing, right, Jeremy Howard? Yeah, exactly. And this, this course I think was quite transformative in, in my education because he really emphasizes learning by doing and you know, lesson one is like, okay, here's a convnet, we're going to do fine tuning, and you're going to get like a really nice uh, model at the end of this. And all of a sudden, it changed the way from like trying to learn things for the sake of learning them to learning them to solve a specific problem. And I think that that, that for me was like a, a really big step and made everything much easier after that. But uh, yeah, learning from scratch is, is, is a tough thing, especially when you're not used to it, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the important thing, I think, when you're trying to solve any sort of complex problem is understanding the problem space, you know, getting like a really deep understanding of it, figuring out what potential solutions are. Coding is a piece of it, right? Like, but it's not it's not everything. You need to be able to think about it in a certain way 
And I'm sure having a PhD, you know, and in your background with quantum physics and everything, you were able to think deeply, you know, ab about these types of problems. Um, so I feel like, so you took sort of an initiative, right? Where you wanted to get into transformers. What, what was your initial um, foray in, in, into transformers? How, how did you first uh, get exposed to it? Yeah, so this is, it seems, again, the story is going to sound similar to the physics one. Um, so it, in Switzerland, we have this uh, conference uh, every year called AMLD, so the Applied Machine Learning Days Conference. And this is a, a fairly big conference where it tries to bridge uh, industry and, and research. And um, I had attended uh, a couple of times, and it was on this particular year, I think it was around 2018, when um, uh, Jacob Uzkorait, who's one of the authors of, of the Attention is All You Need paper, uh, came to present essentially, you know, the, the Transformers paper. And uh, I remember this like auditorium, it was like one of those like, you know, side sessions, you know, not the, the plenary, but it was jam packed. I mean, there was like people sitting on the floor queuing outside. And I remember at the time I was kind of ignorant because I wasn't working on NLP. I was doing more kind of classical data science. So things that were more tabular based um, and time series based. And again, I was like, okay, <laughs> I, I've heard of this paper. There's a guy talking about it. I should probably go check it out. And he, he gave this amazing talk about like how transformers were sort of significantly different uh, from, you know, LSTMs and RNMs. And um, yeah, again, it was like one of those like sort of epiphanies where you're like, okay, this seems important. <laughs> right. I should probably pay attention to it. And um, it just so happened that the, the startup I was working at um, uh, we had started taking a project uh, doing question answering um, and this was really in like the early days where you only had uh, PyTorch pre-trained BERT I think was okay. the, the name the of original, the, the, yeah, like that was the original library yeah and this was like a, a super you know bare bones like library you had a couple of scripts and I remember doing this like extractive question answering um, task on, on this uh, data set of, of clinical uh, notes and it, it really worked. I mean, it was, it was really impressive. And it was a cool problem because it was one where I couldn't make a good baseline. So a lot of the things that you do in data science is often about just being pragmatic. So just pick the simplest algorithm. You know, typically naive Bayes will get you very far in yeah. NLP. But for extractive question answering, it's quite hard. You know, regex will get you a certain distance, but at some point it's tricky. So we just ran this like through this like PyTorch free train BERT and it really gave great results. And again, I was like, okay, this is super cool technology, but I have no idea what's going on, right? I just like did, you know, Python run <laughs> right, right. Uh, question answering. And so when I started digging into the code, it was really quite alien because there's all these uh, concepts like attention, self-attention, uh, transformer blocks. And so again, I was like, all right, let's go look at the paper. Surely that was going to be explained. You look at the paper and you've got this like amazing architecture diagram of the transformer. And I had zero idea. Like I was like, I can't even read this uh, this image. And so then you're like hunting around for like uh, things to learn from. And again, in 2018, there were basically two main references. There was uh, Jay Alamar's uh, amazing blog, um, amazing. which was a series of blog posts. Love it. it. That was one of my, for me too, that was my intro to Transformers really. And I really appreciate the work that he's done. It's amazing. Yes. Continue. Exactly. And so that was like at the sort of conceptual level. And then you had at the other extreme, Sasha Rush, um, he had done this annotated transformer, yes, um, yes. which is like kind of like a line by line uh, implementation of the paper. And I remember reading both of these and going, okay, cool. I've got a bit of an understanding. 
but I really want to know this question answering business, like what's going on here, right? And so I, I felt that there was this kind of gap between like the sort of, let's say, academic, low-level, you know, implementation to the conceptual. And so one of the things I had learned uh, from being a, a physicist was that if you try to teach stuff, that's often a very powerful forcing function to, to learn it. Definitely. And so I kind of joked to my, my colleague, Leandro, who was who's the co-author of the book. I said, hey, uh, I'm going to write a book about Transformers because there's like a gap in the, in the literature. Uh, do you want to do it with me? And he's like, oh, but we don't really know anything about Transformers. <laughs> and I was like, she'll be right. We'll, uh, we'll figure it out. And uh, that was kind of the start of this like journey um, towards, you know, trying to write a book and, uh, you know, using this as a kind of lever to, to deepen our knowledge. Very cool. So, yeah, that was something that I found fascinating looking into you and, you know, some of your past is that you started writing that book and you weren't working at Hugging Face at the time. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So yeah, there's a story there if you want, I can tell you, which is that like my, um, my wife was like, okay, Lewis, you, every day you're talking about hugging face and transformers and, you know, cause I was doing the book, right. And she said like, maybe it's good you, you chat with someone there to just make sure they're not writing a book. Cause it will be kind of sad if you do all this work and then they go, ta-da, here's the hugging face officially sanctioned book. Right. And so, um, Leandra and I just cold emailed, uh, Tom Wolf. Um, who's one of the co-founders of the company. Yeah. And it was one of those like moonshots where you say, no way is this guy going to reply. He's super famous, super busy. And to our great surprise, he, he replied a day or two later and said, oh, cool, sounds interesting. Um, let's have a chat. And, uh, you know, we shared a few draft chapters and he, he was quite happy with them. And so then it became more of an official collaboration. And uh, we then submitted to O'Reilly, who then accepted us. And, uh, yeah, it was like maybe six months or seven months we, we worked together on the book. And then um, when Hugging Face uh, raised like the Series B um, to sort of grow the company, that's when uh, we both joined. That's amazing. Uh, what, what a great story. So I guess that's one way to get a job, write a book about. <laughs> <laughs> Longest interview process ever. <laughs> yes. Um, and then there's an updated edition of the book, right? So there, there was a first edition and a second edition. Um, yeah, there's a revised edition, which, um, I, I think it was, uh, it has color. That's, that's the main okay. uh, distinguishing factor. And I, I think it has a few corrections that are, you know, some errata that, that people picked. Right. Um, but this was again, one of those things where we, we were sort of discussing with O'Reilly, could we have our book in color because so many of these images depend on it. And, uh, then they were like, well, you know, only fast AI gets to do that. <laughs> and, um, and then Many, many people in the community were like really asking for, for color images. And then oh, they, that's they, cool. I didn't realize that. And they gave you color on the cover also, which was nice of them. Um, yeah, and a parrot, which is also yeah, very which is apt. Very apt, yes, with uh, the stochastic parrots paper and, you know, everyone's tendency to think that large language models are like stochastic parrots, which, you know, that, that's, a, that's, a lar that's a larger conversation. Uh, <laughs> I mean, well, to be honest, I think, I don't know if the illustrator knew this, right? So, I mean, just for, for oh, really? viewers, this is, this is what it looks like. So you got this beautiful lorikeet. And um, it, in the like, last chapter of the book, um, this was the one that uh, Tom Wolfe uh, wrote. He, he said, I want to be ambitious. I want to pre-train a, a language model. Um, and we were trying to find like, what's an interesting domain that is not just, you know, pre-training BERT or something, but so that's where um, we settled on code generation. 
And again, we were trying to think of a name, right? And uh, I think it was Tom who, who said, oh, I'm going to call it Code Parrot. <laughs> um, and then, you know, I suppose the illustrator read that chapter and was like, okay, there's a thing about parrots, but it just perfectly happened to line up with, you know, the stochastic parrot paper. So it's the perfect cover. I mean, it's, it's the perfect animal to have on there. Um, yeah, that, that, that's awesome. Um, so let's talk about hugging face, um, and transformers, obviously transformers is a piece of it, but hugging face is really like an ecosystem. Um, do you mind, mm -hmm. can you go, can you go into it a little bit? Yeah, sure. So, um, I'm going to assume maybe most people have heard of hugging face, but let's assume that there are some who haven't. So, Hugging Face is an open source company. And uh, what that means is we write uh, software, open source software that anyone can use for free. And uh, this software spans everything from Transformers, which is the sort of flagship uh, library we have, to uh, data sets, um, to accelerated training or distributed training, to things like inference with a library we have called Text Generation Inference. And, uh, you know, by themselves, these libraries uh, would be already quite useful for people. But the thing that makes it really an ecosystem is we have a Hugging Face Hub, which basically lets the community share data sets, models, and uh, demos uh, with the community. And this gives you this kind of nice feedback loop where people will, for example, upload a new data set, people train models on that data set, and then people build very cool interactive demos using those models. And then the cycle, you know, repeats. And so our kind of like uh, ecosystem spans, originally it was really NLP focused, but uh, with the kind of, I would say, dominance of transformers into other domains like computer vision and speech and, um, you know, eventually video, we've kind of grown um, the kind of coverage of the hub. And so now the hub is really kind of agnostic to, to the sort of library or, or modality. Right. And uh, the way that we often try to explain this is it's kind of like the GitHub of ML. So right. in the same way that GitHub enables software engineers to collaborate, uh, the kind of vision for Hugging Face is to have the hub be the kind of place where machine learning engineers and practitioners can collaborate. Absolutely. And yeah, there's always new contributions that are just making it like, that make Hugging Face even better, which is, is, is so cool. You know, the model hub, the different tasks that you can look at, like the, the way things are sorted, the way that you can look at benchmarks for, for models, um, the good models have model cards that, you know, that the yep. detailed model cards that you can look at that understand, you know, the limitations of the model and how you should use it. Um, I've also experimented with like hugging face spaces, which is really nice. And I know that there's, you can actually have like inference endpoints and, and things like that. So it's, um, machine learning, there's so many moving parts, right? So it's really great to have a resource, a place, a hub, where you can kind of have all of this information in one place. This particular data set, you can connect it with, you know, this, you could fine tune it for, for this particular model. Um, I've been able to use things like out of the box, and I've been able to use data sets, combine it with other data sets. It, it, I mean, what Hugging Face has done, it's created a foundation for the field, right? It's given people the ability to do things that they could never do um, if they were on their own. I think it, it's a really amazing testament to what open source can do. I know that that's like, I'm preaching to the choir, you know, but, <laughs> but it, I, it's in this, 
uh, at environment that we're in, you know, where open AI is actually not really open and, you know, they're very, they're very closed. Um, and, you know, Google once was very open and now that, you know, some mm -hmm. of their stuff is, is closed. Facebook is, meta is, you know, tends to be more open. Um, but hugging face has really taken the stance like this open source community and then look at all the amazing things that you can do with it. Um, and yeah, I mean, sometimes like there'll be like a little bit of a lag, like let's say like chat GPT, obviously that took the world by storm. I mean, I don't think it took that many people that are like deeply entrenched in the NLP world by storm because they could do the prompting and, you know, it was like, yeah, oh, it was yeah. a nice, it was a nice interface that they, that they created, but don't take anything away. It's amazing. Of course, what they did in Struck GPT is incredible. Um, but now Hugging Face has Hugging Chat, right? And you can be trying out different models there and you can be uh, interacting with, diff with different chatbots. So I commend the work. Um, I, I, I appreciate it. It has, I mean, Hugging Face has allowed me to do so many in incredible things. I mean, being able to take you know, Distillbird, being able to take any any of these models and fine tune them on the data sets that, that I'm working with. It's it, it's great work and yeah. it's helping a lot of people. Yeah, and I, and I think the thing to emphasize is this is really only possible because we have like a community of um, amazing individuals. So people who are like the tinkerers, but you've also got companies like Meta um, and also Google who have, you know, a, a good sort of, emphasis on trying to make much of their research uh, accessible. And so this kind of like dual mode where you have, let's say, Meta releasing the Llama models, which kind of really, I think, took the, the open source world by storm. And then you've got all this collective intelligence of, um, you know, thousands and thousands of people trying to tinker with chatbots on their laptops. You see this uh, amazing loop. And for me, I think the LLM wave that we're currently in has been a really powerful testament to that so previously we had this kind of mode where uh, all these different labs were like releasing different kinds of transformers you know some for multilingual some for computer vision and stuff and then once the sort of massive focus switched to lms you're now seeing a large amount of innovation happening just on the lm side and for me like the very cool one that happened recently was when llama uh, one was released it had this kind of limited context of, you know, 2048 tokens. And this is kind of limiting if you want to do, you know, summarization or some other tasks. And like literally random people on Reddit um, figured out that there are these like little hacks you can do to, to the embeddings to sort of dramatically increase the context from, you know, 2000 tokens to 8,000 to 16,000. And that kind of insight then fed in to Llama 2. So right. it's kind of like this, uh, you know, beautiful feedback loop. And in some sense, one of the great things of, of being a hugging face is you're somewhere in the middle, right? You're, you're not really uh, the ones training the models per se, but you're more the, the platform that enables uh, the community to, to build uh, together. And, and that feels, uh, you know, very, very cool and empowering. Yeah, absolutely. Um... Yeah, I mean, I made it clear, but I'm big. I'm a big fan. I love the work that you guys are doing. Um, so having a co-author of one of my favorite libraries, SetFit, I'm not sure how well known it is, you know, but I, I, I think it should be more well known because it, it solves a really interesting problem for me, at least. Um, 
you know, it's nice when you uh, have a data set, like on Kaggle, you know, like you have a data set and everything, but in industry, you never have that data set. You know, you never have, you mm -hmm. have the data, but you never have the labels or anything. So your data scarce sometimes, or your label, label scarce and um, set fit, which is uh, efficient few shot learning uh, with sentence transformers. The concept I find to be fascinating and how well it works. Um, so yeah, having the co one of the co-authors, I'd love to have you just, you know, give, give me some give me some info on on SetFit. Uh, what do you think makes it work so well? Um, what were some interesting things that happened, you know, as you were creating it or helping, yeah, helping sure. work on it? Yeah. Yeah. So so as you say, right, this is um, I think a problem uh, of like dealing with limited labels is something that if you're not in industry, you don't quite appreciate. So if you're an academic, you're really used to just working with like these kind of conventional data sets that have, you know, 50,000 labeled examples and you just train, you know, all your models on this. And, um, you know, for people like you and also previously in my previous job, I was a data scientist. This was like the opposite. It's like, yeah. oh, damn, like I'm so jealous of these academics. I have to, I, I've only got like 16 labeled examples. <laughs> what am, what am I going to do with this? And so, um, some of the early work I, I did at Hugging Face was was around uh, model evaluation um, and trying to um, figure out, you know, how could we um, enable the community to evaluate models across different domains and, and different uh, tasks. And we, we worked on a project with a, a company called Ort, who were interested in probing the, the few shot capabilities uh, of language models. And the way this is kind of conventionally done was you would provide a, a bunch of, let's say, prompts to, to different types of models like GPT-3. And then you would see the ability of the model to kind of complete the prompt uh, with the, the task. So you might say, for example, I have multiple choice questions. I show some kind of examples to, to give the model context. And then I give it the actual question I want, which is, I don't know, categorize, I don't know, this list of planets or something. And then the model completes it. And if it gets it right, it gets a, it gets a, a positive score. And what Ort identified was that many of these benchmarks were um, essentially gamed. So people, because they had access to like all the labels, um, they could always, you know, even though the papers never did this, they could always, you could sort of say cherry pick and tune the prompt. So you, you could always do a bit of gamification to saturate uh, the benchmarks. So what they developed was um, something kind of like Kaggle, where when you do a Kaggle competition, you submit your predictions during the competition and you will see your performance on like a kind of public leaderboard, but there's a completely separate test set, which is held out until the end of the competition. And only at the very end is this then revealed and then the, the final rankings are, are made possible. Right. And so what we developed was a benchmark called Raft, which essentially uh, has the same setup where you submit the predictions of your model on a very limited number of samples. So we're talking about maybe 16 to, to 20 examples. And it's a classification benchmark. So you're trying to basically predict, you know, positive, negative, or multiple choice type questions. And then at the end, uh, we evaluate all this on a hidden test set. And then there's a, there's a leaderboard, which then provides that ranking. And so when we released this uh, benchmark, I think the, the top model was uh, uh, GPT-3, or I think maybe even one of the instruct uh, models. And uh, then the community got excited about trying to figure out, okay, how can we come up with better methods? And right. so there was a, a very uh, impactful paper uh, by Colin Raphael and, and others 
um, where they use basically a T5 transformer uh, to do uh, very efficient future learning. And the, the kind of drawback of this is that you have to kind of construct the prompts. So there's a lot of prompt engineering involved right. to, to match it to the task. And so then uh, at Intel, there was uh, one of my co-authors, uh, Moshe uh, Wasabat, and uh, he, he just on LinkedIn one day was like, oh, hey, I, I, I came up with this algorithm and it's like the top of this raft of benchmark. And it got like a ton of attention. And uh, since he, he knew uh, uh, Niels Reimers from uh, Sentence Transformers, yes. he said, oh, you know, maybe we can explore, you know, going beyond just this, you know, single example. And so that was the start of this collaboration. And to give you a kind of an idea of, of what this is about, um, essentially Sentence Transformers are um, a, a clever way of adapting uh, pre-trained transformer models to come up with very rich embeddings or representations um, of text. And the way they do this uh, typically is using a method called contrastive learning, where you essentially try to um, teach the model how to distinguish between positive and negative classes. Um, and, and positive and negative isn't, isn't just sentiment. It's kind of like, you know, you might be talking about categories. You're trying to figure out how to distinguish different categories. And the results of this are now embeddings that um, typically capture far more semantic um, structure than just taking the the kind of base embeddings of like BERT or something like this. Right. And so what we did was we took these uh, sentence transform models, which are already very good. And then the idea was that you would essentially do a further round of fine tuning to adapt the, the embeddings of these models to be, um, to learn essentially a, a representation that matches the very uh, limited number of samples you have. And so you can imagine if I'm doing like sentiment analysis, imagine I've only got, let's say, 10 examples uh, per class or something, what I can do is I can provide those uh, positive examples to the model um, and, and the label and the negative examples and do essentially contrastive fine tuning. And what this does when you look at the sort of embedding space, it kind of clusters or it makes the clusters of these embeddings start to kind of separate. Yep. And now you've got a very good decision boundary where you can put on a linear classifier and it will then do uh, you know, very well. Um, compared to, you know, the full fine-tuning run. And so in a nutshell, SetFit is just uh, an adaptation of Sentence Transformers plus Linear Classifier, and it's a super simple idea. It works uh, remarkably well. And when we published our paper, um, I think we were state-of-the-art or close to state-of-the-art for models that were much, much larger. So oh, yeah. the, the T5 model was 11 billion parameters, and I think we were close to matching performance with like a few hundred million. Yeah. So, for, for deployment reasons and you know you can train it on your laptop right which is yep. for me the super cool thing that's my favorite part <laughs> um so well i'll go into a couple of things so you know when i came across setfit the i think that the reason that you mentioned basically like it's obviously there's so many complex things that are happening but when you think about it in the term in the terminology like you're just taking a set of data you're encoding it, embedding it, putting it into embedding space, creating these negative triplets and positive triplets. And I, the way I imagine it in my in my brain, it's like it's like they're magnets, right? And the positive yep. triplets are bringing it closer, and the negative are pushing it apart. And then you are fine tuning and embedding. And because you're doing that, and you're pushing what's more similar closer and what's different away. I mean, this is just contrastive learning, I guess. But then you can create that um, that decision boundary. And as you were saying, 
the nice thing is that you can train it on your laptop. Um, depending on how many data samples you have, and if you're on Colab, like it's a matter of you know minutes, right? Like I, yeah. I I've had iteration cycles where I will train the model, run it on tens of thousands of samples and I'm, it's you know five ten minutes in like five ten minutes and then i can yeah. see what classes aren't performing well or whatever and just you know inject some new data points inject a new class remove a class and just train it again and the iteration cycle is is it's unbelievable it's also helped me get initial labels for things so like if yes. i'm starting off in a problem it's like a way for me to bootstrap sort of and, and get get some initial labels so it's it's really nice and i think that you know in the industry right now it's very interesting right there are extremely powerful models right like there's no question gpt4 is very powerful model it can do unbelievable things but there's only one way right now that i'm that i know of of getting access to and that's through an api call and that creates this dependency it creates a latency um, and mm -hmm. it, you know, you don't have full control over, over what your stack, you know, in a way like open AI is down, Azure, Azure is down, you know, what, you're not going to make predictions like that, 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 that doesn't, <laughs> that's not going to work. You know, you, it's not, it's not going to cut it. It's, you know, your, your, your business partners aren't going to be okay with that when you have something like Setvit or a fine tuned Distilbert model or Roberta or whatever. Like you have it, it's your, like it's yours. You can make it as like, you, you know the trade-offs, right? So you know, okay, I need something that's 400 megs, not 40 gigs, right? I need something that can actually run on my laptop or I can run it, you know, in a sense, or let's say I wanna create three or four models, right? So by having this ability to iterate so fast by having contr more control over this ability to fine tune the model that you're working on, you can actually more quickly get something that will provide value for, you know, people, the people that you're working with. I say it to create meaningful text classifiers for people like that. That's, yeah, yeah. that's what a lot of people are looking for and um, set fit either just getting that into production or using it to help me get more labels has been immensely helpful. So once again, thank you. <laughs> Glad to hear it. We, um, we have one user. <laughs> <laughs> one happy user. So yeah, there one you happy go. User. Um, and yeah. And the cool thing is that, yeah, it's not like it's contrastive learning, it's fine tuning. And then it's just, the head is just a linear classifier it, it, it's amazing how how well how well it works um i have a lot of ideas with set fit that i know i've spoken to you offline about but what what's what's one of the challenge i guess what's one of like the challenges that you faced and then if you had more time to work on set fit like what what would you what would you do yeah so i think one of the challenges um we found was that there are some data sets which are intrinsically more difficult than others to classify and um, I think we discussed this offline, but uh, if you take, I think, the AG news data set, you've got these uh, different news categories you're trying to cluster things by or categorize. And typically the, the model, when you've got these kind of overlapping, semantically similar documents, 
uh, the, the classifier struggles to, to differentiate these. And so your performance, I mean, it will still be better than, than you know, your random baseline, but it's, it's hard to get to that kind of, let's say, state-of-the-art uh, level that you get from, you know, really training on like hundreds of thousands of examples. So that was, I think, one challenge which we never fully uh, were able to, you know, resolve is like, how do you deal with, with difficult data sets? Right. Um, so yeah, that's one side. The other one is like when you've got fine-grained categories, um, tends to be quite uh, a challenge. So uh, we had various users who were saying, hey, I'm trying to do like multi-label classification. Right. And I've got a hundred categories and I've got very sparse number of examples. You know, maybe one category has two examples. And this is a, a hard problem in general, um, but it's, a, it's, you know, it's one where, again, the set fit method, uh, you know, helps, but doesn't get you to the point maybe where you can actually use it in production. And then the, the other one that is like, if, if I had more time to work on this, I think um, a very interesting extension is like, could you make it work for token classification? Um, because this is again the classic domain where you don't have many labels um, and labeling I don't know if you've ever done like entity recognition labeling but it's yeah. very painful you have like anything you, know, you have these to like mark the UIs. Spans. oh my yeah, god yeah. yeah and in my previous job like we, we, we had worked on this before and it was very hard because you needed domain experts to like annotate segments of documents and they don't like it really much and you know training on that was difficult um, but we never could quite figure out how to crack uh, the token uh, classification case. Um, so I think this is, you know, if anyone's listening and wants to, you know, extend SetFit and write a nice paper, that would be one way to do it. Uh, yeah. Um, and I think the other one, which is uh, p potentially interesting, is um, uh, one of the referees of our paper kind of made the observation, which I think was a fair one. They said, okay, um, you know, SetFit uses small models, so it's good for deployment. But then I need to have kind of one model per um, classifier. So if you if you imagine that I'm, uh, you know, say on ten different tasks, I might have ten different data sets, and now I've got ten models in production, and maintaining those, you know, starts to get maybe a bit burdensome. And so what they were sort of hinting at was like, well, maybe you could do something like adapters. So you know, in the same way that we use adapters for transformers maybe you can have kind of like a base, like a sentence transformer that you've done this contrastive learning process. And then you have adapters that you can just swap at inference time. So you've only got really one model deployed, but you're swapping uh, all these adapters. Huh. And I think that's something that, uh, you know, would be kind of cool to look at. But, uh, you know, in those days, Laura didn't exist. So it was more <laughs> like, a, you know, a conjecture. Right. Very cool. Um, something that like, if I had more time, I'm, I'm interested in, um, you know, trying out different types of embeddings. I think that that can mm -hmm. really change things. Um, that that's something that personally, if if I had time, if I had more time, I, I would look into that. And as I was telling you, like maybe you know, trying different classification heads and, and things like that. Um, we could talk about set fit all day, but let's let's get into the next thing. Um, so large language models, you know it's unbelievable you know what's going on the capabilities of chatbots it's like every day there's a new thing coming out there's i'm sure you know there's this new one um it's true my, my mistral yes yeah, so seven billion you know they'll i'm sure there'll be mistral 70 billion soon um and it's this really interesting paradigm right 
as humans, we've created so much knowledge and we've created so much written, you know, text and everything. And now we've created these powerful models and we have the compute to actually, you know, read it and do this sort of next, you know, next word, you know, prediction. And that's, it's a really great data set. And then we started adding like another layer, um, fine tuning. And then like we've done work with uh, instruction, fine tuning, and of course, reinforcement learning with, with human feedback. And I know that that's something that you're focused on. Um, so what can you tell us about some of the work that you're doing with uh, RLHF? Yeah, sure. So um, at Hugging Face, we, we have um, kind of, let's say, two small teams uh, looking at this from different angles. Uh, one team is essentially developing a library called uh, TRL, or Transformer Reinforcement Learning. And that was actually written by my co-author, Leandro, oh, cool. um, uh, many years ago. And it was funny because I remember, like, he said to me one day, oh, you know, I'm going to do this side project. I'm going to, like, implement this OpenAI paper um, about, you know, fine-tuning language models from human preferences. And in those days, I was like, what, like... Why, why would you bother doing reinforcement learning? Like reinforcement learning is horrible. Like right. it doesn't it's work. Like ortho orthogonal to NLP. Who could apply reinforcement learning to NLP? Yeah. Exactly. And, and so he, he did this very nice uh, like kind of library. Basically, the original OpenAI code is in TensorFlow, probably TensorFlow 1. No one likes it. So he did it in PyTorch and had a nice API. And in those days, right, like, you know, the compute and the kind of idea of what you would do with this was kind of somehow, you know, limited in the open source community. So you had an example of like essentially adapting a, a model to generate more positive movie reviews. And that was, you know, more or less uh, where he left it. And it sort of sat dormant for like two years. And um, he told me the story that when he joined Hugging Face, like he said to Tom Wolf, oh, I think this reinforcement learning stuff is really important. And, you know, I would like to sort of focus on, on this part, uh, you know, with his library. And again, Tom was like me, he's like, oh, yeah, like reinforcement learning, it's like, it doesn't work, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. And then, of course, ChatGPT came like two years later. And then all of a sudden, the whole open source community was like asking, okay, how do we actually kind of do the same kind of thing? And so the, the TRL library sort of exploded in, in popularity. And now, you know, we've been heavily extending it to integrate these like adapter techniques. And also what I've been working on is uh, how to scale it. So how do you, um, you know, do distributed training of, you know, Llama 70B uh, with this library? And so that's like a sort of part of the team doing open source development. And then the other part of the team, which I also work in, is uh, we're trying to develop essentially stable um, recipes for doing RLHF. And uh, one of the challenges that we've identified is that um, the community has been extremely uh, creative and productive at instruction fine tuning or SFT, supervised fine tuning, sometimes called. And there's now like hundreds or tens of thousands of transformer models that have been, you know, instruction tuned on the hub. Um, but there's very little like RLHF models. So these are models that typically require this fairly extensive optimization uh, with an algorithm called PPO. And we think part of that is because the, the data that you need to, to train these models uh, tends to be expensive to acquire. Right. Um, and also the, um, the compute that's needed um, tends to be significantly more than just standard fine-tuning. And that's partly because the PPO algorithm has some kind of, let's say, instability around the hyperparameters. And so what we've been doing is, first of all, acquiring these data sets, and we want to open source uh, as much of them as we can. 
And then um, we're doing thousands of experiments to figure out for the most popular architectures like Llama and Falcon, what are the kind of, let's say, good parameters um, that work when you're trying to do this reinforcement learning uh, to train chatbots. And um, I can't give a precise date when we will release the things, but I'm you know, hopeful that it will be relatively soon. And we're, we're also exploring these other exciting techniques like uh, DPO or direct preference optimization yeah. and uh, rejection sampling, which is another very powerful kind of baseline technique. And so the goal is to provide the community with code, data sets, and models, um, the usual thing that we do at Huggingbird. Yeah. I mean, this is where this is a technical conversation, but I do want it to be accessible to, you know, also just two concepts, the idea of adapters. Can you, can you explain mm -hmm. that to, you know, how, yeah, how, sure. how would you, yeah. How would you explain that? Yeah. So generally when you do fine tuning, um, and this was the standard practice for, for many years, essentially what you do is you, you take your um, pre-trained transformer um, and this has got some kind of, let's say, basic understanding or statistical understanding of language based on this like next token prediction or, you know, filling in the masks or the, the gaps in, in text. And what you do is you essentially throw away the last layer of this neural network and you replace it with a new layer, which kind of matches the task you're trying to model. So if you're trying to do something like a sentiment classification, you would have a kind of classified classification head on top of this transformer. And then when you do fine tuning, you're basically doing the standard backpropagation throughout the whole model. So you're essentially updating all of the parameters of the model. And this has some sort of memory uh, requirements. And so there's a bunch of like math you can do to figure out how much it costs to do the forward pass through the model to get the, the loss and how much it costs to do you know, the backward pass. And um, for you know, small models, you can run this fairly efficiently on a single GPU. Um, but with the advent of large models, um, especially models that are in the 7 billion parameter plus range, um, you start having to have trouble fitting all of these parameters and the optimization states and all that stuff on a single device. And so you need to do distributed training. And this is where there's all these very powerful techniques like deep speed, FSDP. Um, but the problem there is it's expensive. So suddenly, you know, what used to cost 10 bucks or 30 bucks on a CoLab is now like hundreds to thousands of dollars on a, you know, single node of, of A100s. And so there was a big breakthrough paper called uh, LoRa, so low rank adaptation for language models. And what the authors realized is that um, when you're doing fine tuning, you've already got a really, really good base model. So the, the representations of that model are already very good. So maybe you don't actually need to update all of those parameters when you're doing fine tuning. So the, the idea instead is you look at every single kind of linear layer in the transformer and you insert uh, these adapters, which are essentially just like matrices of, of weights that you want to update. But it's a very small number. We're talking about maybe a million to a hundred million parameters in the extreme case. And so now instead of having to do optimization over 7 billion parameters, you're really only doing optimization on a million or something like that. Right. So this suddenly becomes very efficient. So the memory is, is very much, uh, a lot lower. Um, and it's also quite fast because now I don't have to, you know, train the full model for like, you know, a day. I can do this in maybe 15 minutes and I'll get very comparable performance. Very cool. So adapters seem to me to be like, um, 
sort of like a subfield of how you would do how you do transfer learning, right? For yep. for natural yep. language exactly. processing. Um, yeah, you know, the field moves so fast, you know, and I see all of these papers like Laura and Q Laura and all you know all, all of them, but because of the work that I, that I'm doing, like I can't do a deep dive, you know, in, into everything. So it's it's great to be able to talk to you about that. And yeah, when as as you're explaining, I'm like, oh, this, so this is you know, it's it's transfer learn, it's it's transfer learning, but it's because you're dealing with so many parameters, you can't just like, I mean, I'm sure you could just freeze some layers, but you you have to figure out these new ways of dealing with these massive you know these massive models so that that's that's great and thank you that, that that's a very uh, accessible explanation and then i guess the other thing that you're talking about um in terms of like ppo and dpo so proximal policy optimization <laughs> correct can you go into that just like the base like the basic idea of it yeah sure so um this is a, an algorithm that comes from reinforcement learning and was uh, originally designed in the context of like, let's say games, you know, trying to teach agents how to play Atari and so on. And um, the, the basic idea is in, in reinforcement learning, you, you distinguish between uh, different types of optimization algorithms. There are so-called online um, algorithms or offline algorithms. And uh, offline algorithms, they typically have what's called like a, a memory buffer. So you try to give your agent uh, some notion of previous like experience that it has had during a game. So if you imagine you're playing Pong, you, you, you give the, the agent the ability to kind of recall some of the previous moves it made. So then when it makes the next move, it's able to then, you know, do something slightly better. And uh, the online algorithms uh, of which PPO belongs to um, what they do is they just throw away all the memory and then try to figure out what is the optimal like move to make uh, based on you know just the observations uh, that you're provided. And the the kind of way this works is um, you uh, this is going to get technical, so I'll see, I'll see if I can keep it high level. But um, essentially, you you're, you've got um, in order to predict the the next move you would make in a game, uh, you need some estimator. And uh, this is conventionally a neural network. So essentially what's happening, your observations are gonna be you know, the pixels of your screen. And then you, you have to tell the, the, the agent, you know, should I move left or right in Pong? And uh, the, the sort of prediction of whether it should be left or right is coming from a neural network, which is essentially taking these pixels and then using that information to, to make an inference. And <clears throat> what PPO does is it, um, it measures um, essentially how, first of all, it makes a prediction for what the move should do, but it also measures um, how far away uh, the distribution of your like predictions are um, from uh, previous steps in your optimization. Right. So the idea is that you, if you're just doing kind of like a purely random search through, you know, what the next thing should be, you'll never kind of figure out what, what uh, you know, what the optimal moves are. And if you are completely unconstrained, so you, you maybe you end up optimizing too hard in one direction, you may find that you know just going left all the time is is the right thing to do. Right. And so what what PPO incorporates is this measure of like kind of difference or distance between the previous state of the model to the current state of the model, and then it uses that as a way of kind of constraining the uh, the choices so that you don't depart too significantly. Um, you know. 
from from your from your previous uh, experience. And this is the advantage of doing things online, where you have no memory, so you can't say, "Oh, what did I do ten steps ago?" Right. But what you can do is say, "How different am I now to how I was?" You know, in the previous step. And so that's very like high level. Uh, we can, we can go deeper, but it's more or less around this idea of um, developing uh, optimal choices uh, for, for these games. And uh, the very clever uh, adaptation by OpenAI was to figure out that you can apply this to language models. Right. And I think this was a really impressive innovation. I don't think uh, it was obvious to, to many people that such a thing would work. Right. And the, the, the difference there is that in the conventional reinforcement learning context, you have typically an environment, which is your, you know, your game, you have observations, and then you have actions. And in the context of language models, uh, your environment isn't a game. It's uh, really uh, a data set of prompts. And what happens is you provide these as your kind of observations to the language model. The language model will then generate um, a response. And what you do is you then have something called a reward model, which ranks the, the quality of that response. And then it's the combination of that score for the reward plus the measure of difference from your previous state that is used to sort of optimize the model in a direction that hopefully maximizes the reward um, with this kind of additional constraint. And so the basic idea here is that you're encoding the human preferences in your reward model. And then by optimizing your language model, you're kind of pushing it in parameter space to be closer to the sort of let's say, more aligned to the, to the preferences. And uh, yeah, OpenAI did a, a series of very groundbreaking papers, starting with uh, you know simple tasks like sentiment tuning, so trying to make a model more positive, to summarization, and then ultimately instruct GPT, which was the precursor to, to ChatGPT. Right. I'm going to make a shout out to my fellow Great Neck South uh, high school alumni, John Schulman, you know, the, the author of PPO. Uh, Indeed. It's, so, it's so cool. Um, you know, he did work on ro robotics and those video games like you're talking about. And now, you know, he's a co-founder co of OpenAI. And to see this reinforcement learning where, for, well, first off, for so long, people were didn't believe in reinforcement learning, you know, and then people thought that you couldn't apply reinforcement learning to NLP. And then it was that breakthrough. The, the ones that you're mentioning. And in my mind, Instruct GPT was like, really, like the, the one that, you know, broke the camel's back, I guess. It, it, that, that was the thing that opened the, the floodgates for, for, all of the, for all of this. Um, so yeah, it's, 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 so, it's so amazing. It's, it's, I'm looking forward to hearing, you know, some of the um, results of your, your experiments, um, looking at all of the, the work that you're doing on RLHF. That's very, very exciting. And I know that we could definitely go into all of it. I mean, there's so many questions, right, around like, how do you know you're getting human alignment? You know, the biases around longer responses, you know, tend to be accepted, you know, better and things like that. And then something that I'm like really interested in and something that I'm doing in some of the work, like using other LLMs to validate, you know, to validate things because they have like um, RL... AI, like reinforcement learning with um, like, a LLM, like an LLM in, in the feedback loop, which I don't know. Those are the ones that kind of scare me a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, yeah, although I think I think that, that all these techniques are, are trying to come up with like creative solutions to two main bottlenecks we have today. So the way we evaluate large language models has traditionally been on a series of like fixed benchmarks. So you have things like, um, let's say the MMLU benchmark, which is a, a, a measure of like kind of, let's say college or grade school level science questions or um, exam questions. And this is meant to measure like the reasoning capabilities of models. Um, and then you've got like a truthful QA, which is another benchmark that tries to sort of measure the sort of hallucinations in some way. It's like a proxy for those hallucinations. And um, all these benchmarks, they, they have the limitation that they're, they're static. Um, and so what often happens is even though people are, try to be careful about decontaminating the, the pre-training uh, to not include these because these models, these, these benchmarks are everywhere, right? They're like right. on GitHub, they're on the Hugging Face Hub, they're in like, you know, random, I don't know, Dropbox <laughs> folders. And so when you scrape the whole internet, right, you've got to do a lot of work to sort of try and decontaminate this. Um, but the other thing is that they often are just proxies for like, uh, let's say, capabilities that academics have developed over, over years. And there's a difference between that and what the end user wants. So the end user, in the case of, say, chatbots, they want something that they can, you know, have a conversation with. And they want to be able to, uh, you know, be able to ask, a, a, say, a wide range of different topics. And a really nice example of this is in the QLaura paper, which was uh, this like quantized uh, approach to Laura. They show that if you basically train a language model on the FLAN uh, V2 dataset, so this is like a very classic academic benchmark uh, from Google around uh, kind of like this uh, sort of multitask reasoning. Um, you get something which just crushes all the academic benchmarks. So you get a model that is like really state of the art on on like you know uh, MMLU and so on. But if you chat with it, it's atrocious. It's like right. a terrible, terrible model. And then vice versa, if you tune your model on more like chat related data sets, so do instruction tuning on that, they will typically perform worse on these academic benchmarks, but then much better to chat with. Right. So. The, the two bottlenecks have been, how do we evaluate chatbots um, in, a, in a robust way? Um, and the second one is being, how do you uh, bypass the, the, the bottleneck of reinforcement learning or RLHF where you need to acquire a large amount of human preference data? And yeah. uh, the most interesting one for evaluation, I'll just uh, mention briefly, uh, the, the, the folks at LMSIS, they're a, a collective of researchers from Berkeley and elsewhere. They, they pioneered the use of GPT-4 as a judge. So the idea is you, you show GPT-4 uh, the response of your uh, chatbot, and it just says, you know, did it follow the instruction? Here's my score. And then you get some way of measuring uh, the relative capabilities. And for the human preferences, we haven't cracked that yet, but there are many researchers doing this AI feedback to try and see if language models today, especially GPT-4, could be used as a way, as a proxy to essentially annotate uh, the data for you. Right. It's so fascinating. And it, it, this is why it's so important to um, like just have like a strong background in like just machine learning in general, because what you're, what you're explaining in the first problem um, where like they're seeing, like they're kind of like seeing the benchmarks in my mind, like it's just like data leakage, right? Like it's just like, yeah, it's, it exactly. sounds like data leakage. It's like, did you split up like your training validation and test set? Like, <laughs> I don't know, like maybe you didn't there because if it's not yeah. able to generalize, um, then you didn't succeed in creating a robust robust model. It makes you realize like 
you know, benchmarks have their role in things, but they're not the be all and end all, right? You you have to like that that and that's the interesting thing. I was listening to um, one of the llama chain uh, lane chain. And how it's like, it's a vibes test, you know, it's like, just exactly. like, because you can run every benchmark, you can run every data set, you can try some like summarization data sets, come on, it, you can summarize things in so many ways, it, it's the, yeah. the context is so important. And then you see these things and all these influencers are posting things on Twitter and LinkedIn, <laughs> and they're like, Oh, try this model. And then like, I plug it in, I use it on Hugging Fish. I have a couple of tests that I have it do S still can't uh spell lollipop backwards um, oh, okay that's an interesting one <laughs> it's because of the tokenization it's it's not yeah a yeah, big yeah, deal. yeah not a big yeah deal. true i guess if you do arithmetic as well it's often yeah and then yeah arithmetic obviously but like just get a calculator i the, the whole people tricking chat you uh you know uh chat bots on arithmetic stuff i'm like no, use it for what it's use it for what it's good for. But yeah, you notice you, you'll you'll find this model that everyone's raving about, and then it writes these responses to you where it uses the noun over and over again, right? Like mm -hmm. I'll say, um, you know, tell me a story about a, a mouse going to the moon or something. It'll say like the mouse this, the mouse that, the mouse like, and it's just like it's it's not how a human would would speak or or, or anything or anything like that. So. Yeah, I have a, a certain vibes test. Uh, my colleagues make fun of me for it, um, but the lollipop test is, is 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 one of them, and I've yet to see very few pass very few pass that one um, for whatever that's worth. We yeah, we have uh, yeah. we have three vibes. I can give you the three the three vibe tests that we give at Hugging Face. So um, there's a cool prompt from InstructGPT, which is uh, why is it important to eat socks after meditating, and <laughs> invariably most models will say eating socks after meditation is an ancient practice which has tons of nutritional benefits and like it's like make sure you get the dirt out of your socks and prepare oh, them properly i mean it's, it's really funny and uh the other one we often use uh comes from jack clark who's at anthropic which is um how many helicopters can a human eat in one sitting oh, and invariably they'll be like oh the average human can eat you know this many kilos of food in a, in a meal and therefore if we decompose a helicopter into kilos you get that and the, the other one which uh, leandro uh, developed when we were doing stack llama which was like a kind of proof of concept for uh, reinforcement learning on um, stack exchange was uh, you, you say there's a llama in my lawn how do i get rid of it <laughs> and this is not really a vibes test of capabilities. It's a vibes test of personality. So um, most models like say ChatGPT will give you a very polite and uh, reasonable answer like, you know, cool animal protection, blah, 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 do this. Um, but when we trained Stack Llama, it was like, get a flamethrower <laughs> and burn it to a crisp. Oh no, and, <laughs> not ready and, for like, not ready for production. <laughs> exactly. And, and what we realized or, or we thought about is that in the Stack Exchange, you know, website, there's like a, a whole topic of Dungeons and Dragons, which is around, uh, you know, people giving advice on how to handle, you know, different scenarios. And we suspect that this is probably feeding into the, the optimization. But it was so funny because you could then say anything like, oh, you know, a kangaroo is in my lawn. How do I get rid of it? And it'll be like, get a boomerang and, you know, throw it at it. I mean, it was yeah, quite funny. Yeah, that's yeah, that's why, the, you know, this is going to open up another Pandora's box. But just the idea of um, 
you know, like what true intelligence is and, you know, people being very scared of these chatbots. It's like, you know, they have a certain, I don't want to even use the term understanding. They have, it's statistical preference, you know, statistical preferences. And then it's being fine tuned on what humans want to hear. It's not quite, you know, able to be executing things. It's not quite, like, it's not, it's not given that power just yet. So I, I think everyone kind of, just use it for what it's good like use it for what it's good for generative models have their place fine-tune you know llms have their place um but i'm not i'm not i'm not one of those doomsday i'm not one of those doomsdayers um i have a feeling that maybe you're not either but you can you can correct me if i'm wrong <laughs> oh yeah my my p doom is really high um <laughs> no no I, I think uh for myself um it's something where I kind of oscillate between like center left, center right. If you imagine these like two extremes and um, I think it's partly from living in Switzerland, you get used to, uh, you know, <laughs> sort of taking the, the middle the road. Narrow, yeah. The middle road. But I, I suppose I can see like uh, the, the, both sides of this. So um, a good example of this, I, I met um, a chemist uh, at this AMLD conference this year and uh, he, he was one of the red teamers for um, uh, GPT-4. And he was red teaming it from the perspective of like, uh, like chemical synthesis, you know, how far can, can it, um, you know, synthesize or help you build, you know, nasty things. And he said, you know, of course it's like not great. It, uh, it's missing a ton of steps, but he said, um, what it uh, showed was like the value of expertise. So, um, imagine you're trying to, to build something like, you know, some sort of chemical reaction. Of course you can Google a lot of stuff. But what uh, GPT-4 can do is say, oh, um, based on the results of your experiment, you know, maybe you should increase the temperature of this or do something like that. And this starts to be, I think, quite a different uh, paradigm to the just information lookup where it's more like uh, expert advice. And the models are clearly, you know, not great. Um, but uh, yeah, this, this, this guy kind of showed me that, like the dual use when you start thinking about um, like chemical biological applications um, it's a little bit of a un, un, sort of uncertain area right and it, a little bit depends on how well the capabilities of the models increase in, in the natural sciences and then at the other side um, you've got like let's say the um, the one where okay there's no problem let's just go full steam ahead um, I, I feel like it's still like not clear to me if that's also like you know opening you up to unintended consequences that are again super hard to predict and for me personally like if you look at things like social media I, I find this answer to be this this kind of argument to be fairly compelling which is that you know we did essentially ai on 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 society with recommendation algorithms yeah and we got some you know unintended side effects uh, around you know democracy and so on and i feel that you know llms and potentially whatever comes next they may play a similar role where they become so integrated into our society that you know you, there's it's not something nefarious like some bad actor it's just the, the the complex mechanics of interacting systems um you know cause these things and those are very hard to predict um but at the same time you know just being you know <laughs> what is it effective accelerationist is uh you know maybe maybe not the that's too extreme for me 100% and I should um, I should clarify that it's of course it's very important to understand the biases and to try to mitigate any of any of those types of risks speaking of like one of the things that, that you're talking about like that sort of the alignment product the alignment problem like Brian Christian's work 
where the predictions of the model affect the behavior of the human and then the behavior of the human affect the inputs for the model and then like that's what has created like with social media you know the radicalization and you know all the things it, it, it had a it had a major effect on po you know politics in the in the u.s um you know in in previous elections and you know jeremy howard has taken a, a lot of has done a lot of work on that which which is which is really fascinating and important and very important work so yeah i don't mean to make light of any of it of course um it's important to have smart people that are thinking about these things and, and working on it. And I think it's important that people realize like there's not like, yes, progress is important, but there are people that care, right? Like hugging face cares. I mean, people at OpenAI, you know, people give them a bad rep. They care also like no one is trying to create something that's gonna, you know, bring any negative things in into the like into this world. People are doing their best and maybe maybe perhaps there's more that more that can be done um and there should be more research around it but there's so many there's this big movement I, I i felt where people are working in machine learning for a while then they tend to move into like ai ethics because they realize like mm -hmm. the power of it and i think it's like a very interesting um transition uh that that people that people make um just in the interest of time i mean i feel like there's about two dozen questions that i wanted to ask but we, this was such a this was such a great conversation um but there are two two last questions um that i that i do want to ask you um what advice would you give to machine learning scientists or data scientists that are just starting out um in in their career this is a big big change from what we've been talking <laughs> about but yeah we're going to advice sure. Yeah, so I think as usual, when I, when I get asked a question about advice, I, I try to caveat this, which is like, uh, you know, most advice is kind of worthless and uh, mo mostly because it's like out of context, right? Like the, the things that, uh, I don't know, worked for me were like a, a point in time with a certain background. So I just want to make sure that like, you know, people don't, you know, listen to this and immediately do what I, <laughs> what I suggest. Um, but I think uh, the things that I, I learned in, in the last uh, couple of years is that, um, you want to really uh, maximize your kind of learning rate, so to speak. So especially when you're starting out, it's um, it's a vast field. So you've got everything from computer vision to NLP to, you know, biology. I mean, you can think of doing ML in, in so many domains. And the, the one of the mistakes I think I made early on was I was just kind of like trying to learn all the things at once. So I was like hopping from like, I don't know, uh, like Ian Goodfellow's deep learning, super technical, theoretical book to <laughs> exactly <laughs> to, you know, online, some online courses and stuff. And uh, the, the problem with that strategy is you end up with a kind of shallow knowledge of like lots of different random things. And uh, again, the, this like fast AI uh, kind of philosophy was around uh, sort of pick roughly one sort of domain, one kind of problem and go deep on that. And then use that as your kind of foundation layer to, to, to branch out. And so for me personally, uh, the, the, the vertical I, I looked for was, was NLP because I found that to be, you know, quite exciting. Um, and then it was more or less all in on, on this and ignoring computer vision, ignoring reinforcement learning, you know, obviously to my detriment. But <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, until you, was, you, smacked, you got smacked with it and you had, yeah, you had. Exactly. <laughs> 
And so but that's my, my fine. recommendation, yeah. like that, it's that's fine because you could get the foundation, and then you were able to you were able to kind of move into that. Yeah. Yes. I didn't mean yeah. To and the other one I was going to say is that um, if you're starting out, especially if you come from like a university, like undergraduate. Um, you may have had a fair amount of, let's say, toy problems. So you, you may have worked on like, you know, nice data sets. You may have worked on, you know, soluble problems. And um, often I think part of our job, whether it's in industry or, you know, in data science, it's uh, basically working under, you know, difficult, uncertain circumstances. And so I would recommend trying to move away from like, you know, the, the things that everyone else does, you know, Kaggle Titanic right and uh and really try to come up with something that's like fairly novel and if i was doing my time again i think um the interesting thing i should have done much earlier was uh contribute to open source and for me this has been the, the fastest way to to sort of accelerate your learning because when you're looking in the internals of the transformers library because you're trying to you know contribute something you really have to understand. I mean, you have to understand what the hell <laughs> this attention stuff is doing. Yes. And so I would sort of say that's a natural place to start if you have the, the time and the resources because you'll both get feedback from the maintainers of the library or libraries, um, and you'll also learn uh, a ton about the, about the sort of foundational layer. Absolutely. I think that, that both of those are such great pieces of advice. Um, yeah, finding a project that you're interested in where the data set doesn't exist, right? Like do spend whatever, however long, you know, some people say when you have a text classification problem, like just spend a week like labeling data and then, yeah. and then go forward. Don't try to like do anything too fancy. Um, but find a problem that you're interested in or a project that you're interested in and do it end to end, right? Like yeah. go from the data collection through everything uh, you know, model creation, the feedback loops and evaluation and all of it. And then understand like, what are the trade-offs? And then also like try, trying to like get it into production. Like what does it take to get it to expose to other people in, in any way? I, I've, I found that to be, to be very, to be very helpful because I think it's important like to be able to understand the concepts and to do it like in an, in a notebook. But then at some point, at least if you want to be in industry, you have to see what it takes to get your, model to, to be exposed and then in terms of open source me too that's how I, I feel the same way i wish i started uh contributing to open source more I, I i wish i was contributing to open source more right now i have done little things like little bugs like little changes that i've made that i'll make little pull requests but i've never um had the opportunity to like really sink my teeth into something and i think it's the best way of getting like free feedback, right? Yeah. Like you get these amazing people that have been, that care deeply about what they're doing and they're, they're very generous and like they, they, they'll help, like they can, they can help you um, and expose you to what it's like to maintain a code base um, and to contribute to, to, to a code base, which is, which is great. Um, okay, so transitioning to last question for the learning from machine learning. Um, what has a career in machine learning taught you about life? Um, maybe not to take life so seriously. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so, I mean, there's a bit of seriousness to that, which is, um, uh, when you're, especially in the current moment, right. We, we have like these very, you know, almost like civilizational level debates about 
should we, you know, what kind of regulations should we impose on, on language models or AI systems um, to, you know, what will be the impact of, of this technology for, you know, even my own career, right? Like, it, it's, it's highly likely that as engineers, we're probably the first people that, you know, may be susceptible to some sort of automation. Um, so, so those are like the serious things. And then also like the, the nature of our work, right? It's um, personally, it's, it's a huge amount of debugging and debugging distributed systems, which are notoriously, uh, you know, difficult to debug. And so if you take all that stuff like really seriously, um, then, you know, you can easily get sort of sucked into this like exhausted mode where, you know, there's just too much, um, you know, uh, tugging at your mind. And so generally speaking, uh, by focusing on those kind of like hard problems in my day job, it's uh, allowed me in my sort of personal life to sort of, you know, be a bit more uh, relaxed about, you know, and also a bit more appreciative of, of the sort of non-AI things uh, that I have around me. Um, but that's, uh, yeah, that's sort of at a high level, I think, what I, what I feel like I've learned. That's great. Uh, yeah, I think that that's, that's a really good way uh, of thinking about it. What, I, what I've heard from people, it's like, yeah, working with machines so much and, and AI and thinking about AI, and then it makes you appreciate, you know, the, the, the human connect, like human and the human connection more. So I think that, that that's, that's a really great, great takeaway and um, a good, a good way to sort of conclude, conclude here. Um, for listeners that want to learn more about your work uh, or, or follow you, what, what would be the best way to, uh, to learn more about some of the things that you're doing? Uh, probably GitHub. So okay. my username is uh, Lutun, L-E-W-T-U-N, and you can just see the pull requests <laughs> I'm opening. <laughs> that's, that's the closest you'll see to, to the bare metal. Um, I'm not super active on Twitter um, and uh, LinkedIn. I, I, I found it quite, uh, you know, distracting in, in the current LLM hype. So try to focus more on coding. Um, but yeah, I would say GitHub is probably the way to go. Um, or, you know, even on the Hugging Face Hub, uh, you can open issues on my repos and <laughs> awesome. I'll respond. I think that's what I did. Um, Lewis, it has been such a pleasure uh, chatting with you. I just really appreciate your insights on all of this stuff. It's so exciting, the work that you're doing. Um, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to chat. Thanks for having me, sir. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of Learning from Machine Learning with the incredible Lewis Tunstall, former quantum physicist turned data scientist and now machine learning engineer at Hugging Face. His work has helped educate and enable the NLP community with the best open source tools. Don't miss out on the resources in the show notes and feel free to connect with me. Thanks for listening and until next time, keep on learning.